0: Between the years of 1983 and 1994, if you turned on your TV and switched the channel to PBS, there's a good chance you'd eventually stumble upon a man with a huge permed afro, wearing a denim shirt and jeans, speaking in a soothing voice, and painting gorgeous landscapes onto a blank canvas for a half an hour. He would do this so effortlessly And he would be so encouraging that you'd really believe you could paint something just as incredible yourself on the first try. And if you couldn't, it wouldn't matter, because if you made a mistake, it was okay. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't even something that needed to slow you down. It was simply a happy little accident you could incorporate into the larger picture, which would still end up being something beautiful. This was Bob Ross. The show was the joy of painting. And although Ross's show ended in 1994, and he unfortunately passed away from lymphoma in 1995 at the young age of 52, he remains an icon. His supportive persona and reassuring philosophy that there are no mistakes, just happy little accidents, has cemented his place in popular culture. Time and time again, in digging up stories for this podcast, I come across accounts of history happening by accident. Scientists accidentally discovering breakthroughs, archaeologists accidentally finding unknown tombs, explorers accidentally having their expeditions go awry, and embarking on journeys that were totally unexpected. And I wanted to showcase four of these stories I've collected along the way. Because all of us have been knocked down at some point by failure. Or by things not turning out the way we thought they should. It's easy to see failure as an ending, or an accident as a setback. But with a little help from Bob Ross, and a few examples from history... I think we can see that even when things don't go the way we planned, in the end, we still have the power to create a beautiful picture. History shows us that the unexpected is not necessarily an ending, but an open door to something new, maybe even a grand adventure. So join me today as we explore some of history's happy little accidents. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In 1856, 18-year-old William Henry Perkins, was on vacation. He was enjoying some time off from London's Royal College of Chemistry. And being a budding young genius and all, Perkin preferred to spend his holiday experimenting in a small homemade lab. He was studying under August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, German chemist and professor, who was attempting to produce a synthetic version of quinine, If you're a British listener, you're probably used to hearing that word pronounced quinine. Rest assured, I'm talking about the same thing. I just have a funny accent. In Perkins' day, quinine, or quinine, was the only known medical remedy for malaria. The only way to get quinine in the mid-19th century was from the bark of the Chinchona tree, which mainly grew on plantations in Southeast Asia. Obtaining it, was extremely difficult and costly. Hoffman wanted to find a way to synthesize quinine, producing it artificially in a lab, which would make it cheaper and much more accessible. The 18-year-old Perkin was hard at work in his small home laboratory while on holiday, trying to help his professor achieve that scientific goal. Coal tar, unlike chinchona bark, was cheap and easy to come by, and Perkin was trying to find a way to synthesize quinine from it. According to Anthony Travis, in an article from the John Hopkins University Press via JSTOR Daily, coal tar was merely the leftover pollution from coal gas, which was the stuff used to light up the Victorian nightlife scene. And the waste was everywhere, usually dumped into the nearest river or canal. When the teenager tried producing an artificial version of quinine from coal tar, all he was left with was a dark, oily sludge in his beaker. The results of his experiments seemed to be nothing but disappointing, greasy globs of goo. However, when he was cleaning out the seemingly useless sludge of failure, Perkin noticed that when the goo touched the piece of silk he was using to clean out his beaker, it turned into a striking shade of purple, one he had never seen before. Perkin had just accidentally discovered the color mauve. More than that, he had just accidentally invented the first synthetic dye. Before this discovery, if you wanted clothing in any shade of purple, you had to get it from living organisms. If you wanted Tyrian purple, for example, you had to extract the purple-producing mucus from inside of a snail's shell, specifically Bolinus brandaris, then expose it to sunlight for just the right amount of time. It could take up to 250,000 mollusks to yield one ounce of usable purple dye. That meant purple dye was expensive. It was also the reason the color purple was considered the color of royalty. This 18-year-old just accidentally discovered a way to synthesize purple dye. And my goodness, did that change everything. He was a millionaire by the age of 21. Within five years, there were 28 dye factories pumping out purple and other synthetic dye colors. During his long and prosperous career, Perkin also synthesized perfume, inks, paints, flavors, and he was knighted in 1906, the 50th anniversary of his discovery of mauve. But the extent to his accidental success doesn't end there. Twenty years after Perkin's accidental discovery, Paul Ehrlich, German bacteriologist and immunology pioneer was greatly intrigued by the synthetic dye Perkin had discovered and began using those synthetic dyes in his research. He began using synthetic dye to stain tissues, organs, and cells. He noticed dyes reacted specifically with the various components of blood cells and the cells of other tissues and developed a chemical theory to explain the body's immune response he spent his career pioneering immunology. His research with synthetic dyes furthered our knowledge of the immune system and won him a Nobel Prize in 1908. So in short, in 1856, a teenager accidentally discovered mauve and synthetic dye while he was on vacation, which led to the pioneering of immunology and a Nobel Prize. That is one happy little accident. There are no shortage of accidental scientific breakthroughs. Penicillin, the microwave, Velcro, even cornflakes, if you can count that as a scientific breakthrough. I might save that one for its own episode. But there are just as many accidental archaeological accidents. In 2015, not even a two-hour drive from where I am, a farmer in Michigan accidentally unearthed a 15,000-year-old mammoth skeleton. Now, every year, when I plant my garden, I hope beyond all reason I'll dig up something similar. I never do, but I'll keep planting veggies until I dig up something interesting. Over 80 years ago, in the outskirts of a French village, a group of teenagers found something even more incredible and even more ancient. In late summer, 1940, the world was swiftly falling into chaos. When Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany two days later. It would take five more years and millions of lives before any sense of normalcy would return to the international stage. September 8, 1940 was a Sunday. A little over a year after their country had declared war on Germany, Four teenagers went out walking through the countryside in the outskirts of their village of Montignac, France. They didn't know it, but they were about to accidentally make one of the most important prehistoric discoveries of all time, although the credit may actually have to go to their dog. One of the teenagers was a boy named Marcel Ravida, although everyone called him Le Bagnard, which means the convict. While he and his friends were walking, his dog spotted something, a fox or a rabbit, and it took off uncontrollably running after it. Marcel immediately ran after his dog. At one point during the chase, his foot caught on a stone. As he tumbled, the stone kicked out from under him, and it tumbled down a hole. The echo and resonance from this stone falling down this hole was far greater than the noise it would have made if it had simply fallen down a fox's den or a rabbit hole. The sound was of stone hitting stone, echoing and continuing to plunge for a long time. The boys all gathered round at the source of the noise, and found themselves peering down into a completely black crevasse they had never noticed before, No one had ever noticed it, because it was extremely overgrown. They couldn't see how far the passage led, but they could tell it was far. Marcel, Le Bagnard, immediately wanted to explore the opening, but without a lamp, seeing anything would be impossible. This would have to be an adventure for another day. For generations, there had been a local legend, that said somewhere in the countryside there was a secret underground passageway that led from Montignac Castle to a manor house at the foot of the hill. The teenagers were convinced they had just found the secret tunnel. What happens when you have bored teenagers and a secret underground passageway? Of course they were going to make plans to come back and explore it. I spent, and I know I'm not alone in this, a big chunk of my childhood hoping I would stumble upon some sort of secret tunnel or bookcase or abandon something that would lead to some sort of adventure. And I can't help but be a little bit jealous that these kids actually found one. Four days later, on September 12th, Marcel packed a lamp and a knife and went to get his friends so they could finally explore what they believed was the castle's secret underground passage. But the other three boys chickened out. A few days had gone by, and they decided they were no longer interested. But Marcel was intent on exploring, so he talked three other boys into going with him. These were three other teenagers Jacques Marcel, Georges Agnelle, and Simone Coinsas. When Marcel led them back to the entrance, it was obvious it would take some work before anyone would be able to climb through the thick overgrowth. At first, no one could get more than an arm inside. After about an hour, they cleared enough away for Marcel to push his way inside. The other three followed. They were in total darkness, illuminated only by the light of Marcel's homemade lamp. It took a few steps before they looked up and started to see the paintings. The first one they saw was a huge red bull with a black head. Then there were horses, lots of horses. Then deer, lions, ibex, bison, bears, all displayed in ancient, yet still vibrant shades of red, black, white, orange, ochre, yellow, brown. It was a gallery of prehistoric animals. For 30 meters, they walked as the cave narrowed, and they watched in awe as the ancient images on the walls and ceiling glowed and danced in the lamplight. These were animals they recognized, but they had no idea who had painted them. No idea these images had been painted and engraved by ancient hands. No idea that they may have been the first people to see these images in somewhere around 19,000 years. These teenagers had just accidentally found Lascaux Cave. They came to a stop just before a hole leading downwards to another part of the cave. The next day, they returned again, this time with a rope and climbed down the 8-meter drop. At the bottom, Marcel saw the image of a prehistoric man, the only image of a human found in the cave, confronting an ancient bison. The gravity of the find was not lost on them. They knew now this was not a secret underground tunnel. This was a cave. They didn't know what these paintings meant or who had painted them, but they knew this place was important. They decided to keep the cave a secret. They only told their teacher, a man named Léon Laval. When he came to see the cave for himself, he knew immediately that it was something prehistoric. Laval contacted Abbé Broy, one of the leading prehistoric anthropologists of the day. By the 21st, only 13 days after Marcel's dog had triggered this accidental discovery, Broy, who had just happened to take refuge in the region at the time, authenticated the find. Within days, it became a national, then international, story. A brief, but much needed piece of good news in a world that was growing darker in the fog of war. Lascaux Cave has some 600 paintings and 1,500 engravings, mostly of animals with a few abstract symbols and one human image. This is typical. Humans are rare in Paleolithic art. No plants or landscapes are represented on the walls. Dating has ranged over the years from between 15,000 to 20,000 years old, with the most recent dating to around 19,000. That's the date given by France's Ministry of Culture and the National Archaeology Museum of France. This site became a popular tourist destination when it opened to the public in 1948. By 1963, it had to be closed as the vulnerable environment of the cave and its paintings were becoming damaged by the number of visitors it was receiving. The colors of the paintings began to fade, and algae started to grow on the cave walls. Efforts to control the damages and preserve the cave are still ongoing. In 1983, a replica cave called Lascaux II was opened to the public, and is located only 200 meters from the actual cave. Lascaux is an incredible snapshot in time. Its importance cannot be understated. Most of history is prehistory. That means most of history is lost history. Lascaux is precious because it came back to us from that huge fathom of time that we can't remember because the only record we have of it is archaeological. And some of the only keepsakes we've got are the ones painted and etched onto those walls. And it was found by accident, when a group of teenagers chased after their dog. I definitely say we can call that a happy little accident. Sometimes the best place to hide something is in plain sight. In 1767, Burma invaded the Ayutthaya Kingdom, located in what is now central and north-central Thailand, as well as throughout much of the southern peninsula. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Ayutthaya had been a powerhouse for over 400 years and was one of the richest kingdoms in Southeast Asia. Over its four centuries, Theravada Buddhism became well-established throughout the kingdom, and was expressed in art and culture and the Buddhist monastic establishment played a large role in society, becoming a focal point for village life. Ayutthaya grew into a wealthy city and was one of the largest cosmopolitan hubs of its day. It had access to plenty of natural resources and it was a focal point for international trade into Siam since it was easily accessible for shipping vessels via the Phraya River. However, conflict with the Burmese state of Tunggu was a continuous threat to Ayutthaya sovereignty. In 1549, Ayutia was invaded by the Tunggu dynasty, but was able to regain its independence by 1590. However, conflict persisted for centuries, all the way until 1767, when the Burmese army once again captured Ayutthaya. This time, the city would not recover it was completely sacked. The king and the royal family, along with thousands of captives, were sent to the Burmese kingdom. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, all Ayutean records were burned and its works of art were destroyed. Everything of value was looted and removed. Golden statues were melted down, and later looters, taking advantage of the ruined city, removed heads from many of the stone Buddha statues that had not been taken when the city was sacked in order to sell them on the black market overseas. Today, many of the Ayutian Buddha statues that remain have no heads. But one statue, one massive Buddha that was considered too worthless to loot and its head too large to saw off, was left alone. It was a little over three meters tall, or over nine and a half feet, and weighed in at a whopping five and a half tons. It was a representation of the Buddha, sitting in the traditional Bhumishparsha mudra pose. In this pose, the Buddha is seated cross-legged, all five fingers of his right hand touching the earth, symbolizing his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, with his left hand placed palm up in his lap. To the invaders, the statue didn't look like anything special. It was made of stucco or plaster and colored glass, which is why it was overlooked by them and the subsequent looters. And the statue sat in the rubble of its former temple for nearly half a century, laying in ruin as kingdoms came and went and the wheels of history continued to turn. That was until 1805 and the establishment of Bangkok as the new capital city of the Kingdom of Thailand. That year, King Rama I ordered the construction of several new temples, and he wanted statues and images of the Buddha brought back into Bangkok from ruined temples around the country. In 1824, the country now under King Rama III, the statue was installed in the main temple building of Wat Chatanaram in Bangkok. Eventually, this temple fell into disrepair and was closed. After that, the statue was moved again to its present location in Wat Trimit Temple in 1935. There are around 400 Buddhist temples in Bangkok, and this one was a relatively minor one. It was actually too small to even house the large statue, which was kept under a simple tin roof for the next 20 years. In 1954, 187 years after Ayutthaya's destruction, a new building was being built to house the large Buddha. Moving this heavy, giant statue was no easy feat, even in the 20th century. On May 25th, 1955, there was an accident. As the statue was being lifted from its pedestal, the ropes being used to hoist it snapped under the sheer weight of this massive statue. The Buddha fell and hit the ground hard. Pieces of it broke apart and all work was immediately stopped to assess the damage. At first, this seemed like a disaster. A terrible accident. A holy relic of historic and religious significance had been broken. But then the workers looked closer. Underneath the stucco and colored glass was a shimmering golden sheen. It turns out this was not a statue of minor significance made out of stucco and glass. This was a massive Buddha made of solid gold. The casting was carefully removed, and the statue, in its original glory, was recovered. Scholars now believe the statue was made sometime in the Sukhothai period, between the years 1230 and 1430. It's possible it was produced at a later date and influenced by older styles, but the latest possible date it could have been constructed is around 1750, though it was probably constructed much earlier. Unlike many Buddha images that are gilded, this one is made from solid gold with varying purities. 40% of the Buddha's body is pure gold. From the chin to the forehead is 80% pure gold. The hair and topknot are 99% pure gold. In all, the statue is worth around $250 million. So why was it covered in plaster and believed to be worthless by invaders? Because that's what the monks at its temple in Ayutthaya wanted them to believe. It was not a surprise when the Burmese army invaded in 1767, the people of Ayutthaya knew their city was about to be sacked and looted. In an effort to save their Buddha statue, they covered it in stucco and colored glass, hoping this would fool the Burmese invaders from discovering its worth and melting it down. And their plan worked. Well, no one discovered their secret for almost 200 years. It is the largest solid gold Buddha statue in the world. And if it hadn't been for an accident in 1955, we would all still believe it was nothing but stucco and bits of colored glass. This statue is now known as the Golden Buddha. Its discovery occurred almost 2,500 years after the death of Siddhartha Gautama, which meant that for many Thai Buddhists, the discovery wasn't just a happy little accident, but A miracle. For this next story, we're gonna skip ahead to the 2000s, because history isn't just past tense. History is now, and it's still happening by accident. Dr. Melissa Brown, professor of microbiology and immunology at Northwestern University, has been researching how innate immune cells contribute to the inflammatory damage associated with multiple sclerosis. The goal of her work, according to Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine's website, is to uncover basic immune mechanisms that mediate disease and to use this information to develop new and more specific targeted therapies for MS. According to the National MS Society, MS is an unpredictable disease of the central nervous system that disrupts the flow of information within the brain and between the brain and the body. This interruption of communication signals can cause numbness, tingling, mood changes, memory issues, pain, fatigue, blindness, and paralysis. The exact cause of MS is unknown, and the experiences of people with MS can be vastly different. As of right now, there is no cure. Research is ongoing. And Dr. Brown, like many MS researchers, studies mice in order to better understand the genetic mutations associated with MS. Dr. Brown exclusively used female mice in her research, like most MS researchers. This is because the male mice just don't get sick. According to an article from NPR from 2016, She was working on a set of experiments using mice that had a genetic mutation which hobbled their immune system. This is because while normal female mice would get sick, the females with the mutation seemed to do better. Dr. Brown wanted to understand why. But when the data came in, it showed the opposite of what she expected. Some of the normal mice were healthy, and some of the mice with the mutation were sick it didn't take long for her to discover why. It turns out, the normal mice that were healthy were actually male. A graduate student that had been helping out on the project had accidentally assigned male mice to the study. The student hadn't yet learned how to accurately identify the slight difference between male and female baby mice genitalia. Apparently, this is actually extremely hard to do. The genitals of male mouse pups are supposedly almost impossible to spot. Full disclosure, though, I'm not going to search the internet for confirmation on what that looks like. But the accidental use of male mice turned out to be a serendipitous one. It allowed Dr. Brown and graduate student Abby Rusi to pinpoint a special group of cells that protected the male mice from MS. The discovery of these innate lymphoid cells has opened new doors in MS research. We don't know yet exactly what new breakthroughs this particular happy little accident will bring as its history is still being written. I wanted to share this particular story because it's a contemporary one. And I love that this theme of history and breakthroughs happening by accident, which I seriously run into all of the time, is still happening. All of the stories we've covered today have had the unexpected in common. Some had failure, some surprise. All of them had happy accidents. I think all of our stories, all of our lives, have these things in common. At least at some point. We all fail. We all make mistakes. Not every failure or mistake will seem like it has a happy ending. But all of them will eventually become a part of the greater canvas we paint that one beautiful picture that becomes our story. I'm not a philosopher, so I'll leave you with a few of Bob Ross's best quips, since he was better at those than I am. Here are a few gems that I think hit just right with the history we've covered today. As Bob so stoically said, you need the dark in order to show the light. You have to allow the paint to break to make it beautiful. Anytime you learn, you gain. And of course, we don't make mistakes. We just have happy accidents. Thank you so much for listening today. I know how many podcasts are out there, so I genuinely appreciate the fact that you took the time to listen to this one. I hope you enjoyed exploring some of history's happy little accidents with me today, and I hoped it helped inspire you a little bit. I'll be back again, as always, in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Stay safe. Stay smart, stay curious, and until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.